remembering that every neurodiverse person is different. There may be some who need to have a heavily adapted recruitment process, but others who are absolutely fine with the regular process that everyone else goes through. The other element is reasonable adjustments in to views. Reasonable adjustments, firstly, is a term that annoys me hugely, has become quite commonplace, and I think that it does have legal ties to the Air Quality Act. But actually, Pope was speaking with one of the vice chairs of the Civil Service Disability Network. She said to me, why don't we call reasonable adjustments workplace enablers? And actually, that's such a nice term. It's a much, much better term. You're not adjusting something, but you're enabling somebody to be their best. And for me, that language is really important. Hello, everyone. It's Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive here. Welcome along to another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. It's an absolute delight uh, to be able to talk to you again. And as you can hear, I've just about got my voice back after a fabulous REC Awards night at the end of November. Another great event we had at the end of November was our EDI Summit on uh, the 28th. That was a great day that brought together over 100 recruiters to talk about uh, the ethical and commercial steps we can take to improve our own businesses, but also our clients' businesses in terms of broadening the candidate pool and making the most of uh, the opportunities we have. And actually, today's discussion is going to be all about an aspect of that later on. So I'll look forward to introducing our guest in a moment. Away from that, at the REC, still lots going on through December and into January. Uh, do look out uh, for uh, for our latest data, the report on jobs. That's coming out on the 8th of December. Actually, around the same time, there's a fantastic new report we've been working on with EDSK, the Education Channel charity on the pathway from school to work. Um, that's well worth your time as well. And it'll be on the REC socials when it's published. Uh, produced that with great support from uh, James Reid uh, and a, a fantastic contribution, I think, to the forming of manifestos. The other big new publication that we've got coming before Christmas is this year's uh, Bible of Recruitment Data, the Recruitment Industry Status Report. That'll be coming out on the 11th of December, so look out for that, all the latest on our industry through 2022 and into 2023 coming out in that. Looking beyond that into next year in January, a couple of big things coming out. Our manifesto is coming in January for the general election. Of course, 2024, very likely to be a general election year with lots of uh political change on the horizon if you're looking at the polls right now but we're also producing a really nice bit of work on uh, talking to your clients about buying recruitment services well and that is also something that I think you want to uh, take in hand when we when we get it out in in January. Looking further afield, do save the date on the 25th of June next year, which is going to be the REC's in-person conference in London, uh, REC Live 24. We've already got some fantastic speakers lined up for that. So do uh, save the date now and uh, book on. Uh, we'll be opening up bookings reasonably early in the new year. So a lot still going on as we get towards the festive season. It's uh, 
uh, nice and fresh outside today, so I'm glad to be inside to talk to our guest, who's Stephen Ingram, for, who's the founder of Neurodiversity Together. Stephen, welcome to the REC podcast. Thanks for having me, Neil. It's an absolute delight. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about what you're doing with Neurodiversity Together? Where to start, really, because there's so, so many different strands, but I suppose the easiest way of explaining it is that um, neurodiversity together is bringing together my experience as a neurodivergent um, person at work with autism and ADHD, a stammer and many, many other characteristics, traits and symptoms because of that. It also brings in my 15-year career as a management consultant where my focus was around many things such as culture, people, learning, change, HR transformation and much, much more. And lastly, my experience of helping others, both neurodivergent people with a range of different conditions at all levels of an organization, as well as helping business leaders understand what they can do differently, how they can evolve or grow or adapt their processes at that central business type of level. That's really interesting, Stephen. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about in the past, and let's start at the the kind of whole level of the recruitment process, I'm sure we can dig into specifics later on, um, is if you're a, a recruitment agency, you're a consultant, you're a hiring employer, how do you think about neural inclusion in recruitment? What are the what are the starting points that uh, that that you might identify? Because I know we've discussed in the past, it's very easy to get bad advice in this area. Fully, fully, and I think that that there's also an aspect where everyone has their own methods and own styles around this. What's most important for me and what I always try and do when I'm running training is to not necessarily tell people what they need to do for each type of condition or each type of person but actually how they need to ask questions or think about things differently. So to put that into context each and every neurodiverse person is different. They might have the same or similar condition. They may experience um, similar things, but yet they'll each work in very, very, very different way. And I think that some of the key things recruiters can ask is not only what something is, but what it, it might feel like and also how it might impact somebody in a good and bad way. That's interesting so what we're saying here is um don't jump ahead of kind of candidates by thinking about you know what might i need to do for candidates but actually ask the right questions and 
put the power back in the hand of candidates? I think that it's a combination of giving all parties, which is the recruiter, the candidate and the employer, equal measure to be able to have the right information to allow them to work in a more productive um, together way um, and to ensure that each is looked after and cared for as part of that process. The reason I say that each is looked after because as a recruitment um, consultant, you might want to do a brilliant job for your candidate, but feel really, really guilty if you're not able to for whatever reason. Part of the approach and part of the way of thinking that I roll out to people is to not forget anyone involved in the process. That resonates for me because if we think about consultants in our recruitment businesses um, and we think about hiring managers, interviewers in the, the in the client business, often the challenge is confidence and understanding how to do things and understanding to ask the questions. But equally for the candidate, there's something in confidence to to be clear about what they what they might need, but also understanding what the offsets in that might be between um, uh, in terms of helping the the company to see the strengths that they have. We'll go on to talk a little bit about different processes in a second. But how do you get that, just that sense of getting an open discussion going about what people need? What's what's your advice on kind of how we reduce the stigma of that? I think that there are a couple of things in there to unpack. Offsets within hiring managers is a really, really vital one as well which will be great to come back to but back to the question that you've just asked removing stigma it can be really tough each and every recruiter will have their own style and their own way of interacting with candidates i know from my experiences um that i've had some who basically just want to get an absolute ton of candidates put forwards for a role and they don't necessarily care too much about how the candidate is feeling but on the flip side I've had many many more brilliant um, experiences where the recruiter that I'm speaking to really cares and wants to take their time to make sure that I'm the right person to make sure that the company's right for me. I think that what I would um, ask everybody listening to this to do is to take a moment to think and if you've ever had something really really bad happening to you at work um, would you be happy telling others about it now it's not always the case but a neurodivergent person can have some really bad experiences within the workplace Um, I know that I've had my fair share and it took me a long time to be open um, enough to want to really talk um, about those and how they made me feel. 
how some of them made me feel though was that it was better to hide my condition um because of some of the stigma around it um and i think that that what i've learned over time is it's not necessarily about whether i disclose or not but how i do it the story that i tell when i'm speaking to a recruiter a client a company whatever i'm always always driving home the message that when somebody discloses encourage them to give a balanced story and also to remember that they don't have to explain their whole uh, story about their condition at once and it's the case that remembering those two things can be really really important to somebody it's the case that for neurodivergent people it can be hugely hugely scary to apply for a job after they they've had a bad workplace experience i know that i found that myself once but it's about providing that safe space that 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 sort of warm and fuzzy space it's about recognizing the skills the candidate can bring and it's about disclosure being a personality aspect if you like it doesn't necessarily define all of that person that i think is fascinating and while you were speaking i was recalling an example that an rec member kelly dunn gave at the um at, at the edi summit the other uh the other week where we were she was discussing um a neurodiverse candidate early career neurodiverse candidate and and one of the roles she was playing as a recruiter was just reassuring the client that the way things were set up was working for the candidate because of course their expectations of how to welcome someone in their first job in were completely different for this person than they they would be for uh many many other people um so let's think about the stages of of recruitment um one of the things we discussed uh while we were thinking about this podcast even was you know what are the the good and the less good things perhaps uh that that you've seen that you'd particularly want to draw out as things for listeners to take away and chew on in terms of their own processes that's a good question there are so so many ways which i could answer that i think that I'm going to focus on two particular elements. The first one is remembering that every neurodiverse person is different. There may be some who need to have a heavily adapted recruitment process, but others who are absolutely fine with the regular process that everyone else goes through. The other element is reasonable adjustments in to reviews reasonable adjustments firstly is a term that annoys me hugely has become quite commonplace and i think that it does have legal ties to the air quality act but actually i was speaking with one of the vice chairs of the civil service disability network she said to me why don't we call reasonable adjustments workplace enablers and actually that's such a nice term it's a much much better term 
you're not adjusting something, but you're enabling somebody to be their best. And for me, that language is really important. The second part is there's a lot written about reasonable adjustments that people can ask for during the recruitment process online. And I've seen some people perhaps jump in to requesting adjustments too quickly without really understanding, number one, what they hope to achieve from the adjustments. Number two, if they actually understand what that particular adjustment will help enable them to do better. But number three, think about the implication that adjustment might have on other people within the process. Now, what I mean by that is I held a discussion session with some recruiters the other week, and one of them asked me about giving everyone, regardless of whether they were neurodiverse or not, interview questions in advance. My answer was, there's nothing wrong with giving everybody questions in advance. However, if somebody who hasn't requested questions in advance gets them beforehand, what do they think? How do they action those questions? What's the guidance that you're giving to to the candidate um, of how they can maximise the use of those questions? But also, what is the guidance you're giving to the interviewer to help them understand what candidates have been told in advance. If, let's say, a neurodiverse candidate asks for interview questions in advance, they get them and then they write down a script of every word that they're going to say. How does the interviewer feel about the candidate reading off a script? Does it make the interviewer perhaps feel that they may not be able to delve into as much detail as they would like on a particular topic? Don't get me wrong, though, for a done this myself. I never normally ask for questions in advance of an interview. However, with my ADHD brain, I have a habit of over-talking and making too many points if I asked for the questions, if I made some more notes about what I would have to say, perhaps it would help me. So I'm not by any means saying that asking for questions in advance is a bad thing at all. But it's a case to think about the expectations um, that are being set around them to all of the different stakeholders. That is a really fascinating way to think about it. And you get a lot of discussions about, well, how do you, how do you make sure that you keep processes fair, you enable people. I love that language of uh, enablers. Um, but also you build confidence on both sides of the table at an interview or uh, uh, or, or or elsewhere. And, and one of the big roles, I think, for recruiters is to contribute to that building of confidence on both sides of the table. That's where, as agents, we, ha- we have a big role and true consultant recruiters can make a difference. 
So we're just drawing our conversation towards its close here, Stephen. And I thought I might ask one last question, which is, I mean, you know what REC members do. They help candidates meet employers or they place temporary workers with employers. If, and obviously I say this with uh, kind of uh, a vested interest in everyone who's listened to this, uh, digging into the new REC EDI uh, guide, which we published at the at the summit. But if you're thinking, as a lots of our members are small recruitment firms, and they'll be thinking, how do I make a start on this? What are one or two small things I can do that will really help with the the neural inclusion of what I do? Uh, what would you say is the place for them to start? Well, I would definitely say a brilliant starting place is to have me in for a couple of my talks. But um, but thinking about more practical examples, I think really what I would say is, firstly, be aware of everybody in the process. Don't just think about what something is. Think about how something might feel. You want to not only acknowledge, but also to understand everyone's points of view and be able to ask in a thorough but not intrusive way what is the best approach for everyone. I think as well, some of the other things that can be done is working with the company and the candidate to also to also understand that grey area between having an offer made, accepting that offer, being onboarded into the company and then going into the business as usual phase, which is a really, really tricky area for lots of people, lots of different companies do it differently. And I think that actually thinking about about what comes after recruitment and starting to help your clients and also your candidates think about what that might look like can be a really, really big value add as well cracking example there and you know funnily enough when you were saying that I was thinking of some advice uh, our friend the recruitment guru Greg Savage gives our members which is you know qualifying an offer and walking side by side with your candidate when they decide to resign and and leading them gently towards uh, acceptance and get and and carrying them over the threshold into the new employer. Actually, that is a big bit commercially for for a recruiter, particularly a permanent recruiter, in making sure you make your numbers. But doing it well has an outsized impact on uh, uh, on some groups and I'd imagine neurodiverse candidates might be a particularly important group for consultants to get that right based on what you've just said. Um, well, fully, Neil, sorry, just to throw um, a stat out there. The Office for National Statistics found last year that the pay gap for disabled people at work is getting bigger and bigger if somebody's not recognizing their true market value at the contract negotiation phase then it can contribute to that statistic becoming even bigger which definitely isn't what anyone wants wants to see 
Yeah, absolutely. And look, as as recruiters, we're enablers of our candidates. So I think there's a big there's a big job there in qualification and negotiation support and and all of that. Stephen, this has been a fascinating discussion. You've already mentioned that you do talks. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best option? Hit you up on LinkedIn, or is there somewhere else you'd like them to go? Yep. So they can find me on LinkedIn. I've got my personal page and company page there they can also email hello at neurodiversitytogether.com brilliant Stephen it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today thank you for for joining us for a chat thank you for having me and thank you to all of you for joining us on this edition of Talking uh, Recruitment, the REC podcast. If you've enjoyed our chat with Stephen this afternoon, do dig into the back uh, catalogue. There's some really interesting stuff in there. Why not have a look at episode 2023 with Alex Arnott, who's the board advisor uh, for 35 companies and, uh, and uh, creator of Founders, who's talking about the barriers, mistakes and successes of recruitment uh, for recruitment business owners, or maybe look at Episode 23 with Fraser Duncombe of Water, where we're discussing employee engagement in the age of technology and behavioural change. Lots to dig into there if you're not quite sated in your uh, wish for an REC podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us on this one. And I'll look forward to talking to you again on another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Thank you for listening today. I hope you took away some valuable thoughts from this discussion. If you'd like to hear more, head to rec.uk.com forward slash talking recruitment or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Simply search Talking Recruitment to find us.